This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. We all awakened to a Bloomberg Opinion column by former New York Fed President Bill Dudley. He argued that the U.S. Central Bank risks enabling further escalation by the president when it comes to the trade war with China. Some pretty harsh words. Yeah, who needs coffee when you got Bill Dudley coming in hot? <laughs> exactly. Peter Coy is with us, economics editor at Bloomberg Business Week in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York. Also with us from our Atlanta bureau, Steve Matthews, economics reporter at Bloomberg. So, Peter, I do want to start with you. Uh, you read this column, Bill Dudley. This is a voice we listen to. Um, I don't know. What do you make of it? Yes, sir. Bill Dudley is an important person. He's former president of the Federal Reserve Bank mm-hmm. of New York, which is really the most powerful of the regional banks. It's the only one with a permanent vote on the Federal Open Market Committee. And he was there up until just about a year ago. So what he says matters, even though he's no longer at the Fed. He's at Princeton University now. So he uh, basically what you said that he's risks enabling the trade war is correct. A lot of people have been making that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the tra- Trump does something that could damage the economy. Fed reacts by lowering interest rates. Okay, that is pretty much hard to argue that that's a dynamic. Really, the question is, what do you do about it? And that's where Dudley went way beyond what other people have been saying. Meaning what specifically? Well, specifically saying, don't do that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So he's saying, bad. All right, Steve Matthews, come on in here. You've been a Fed watcher for a long time. You've covered a number of different Fed presidents. You speak, Fed speak, better than anyone I know. Uh, This was, this didn't require, I should say, much interpretation. This wasn't like, I'm not sure what he means. I think we all know what he means. Having done this for a while, what did you make of it? Uh, this was pretty shocking because, you know, Dudley, as Peter said, is kind of, you know, recently was an insider, uh, very much part of the mainstream. He was not viewed as some kind of wild-eyed figure. And basically here, he, he was saying two things. One, you know, maybe it's not the best idea to lower interest rates in, re- in response to trade uncertainty. And a lot of people might agree with that. It's debatable in terms of the risk. Risks and costs, but the second thing was, you know, Trump is a imminent danger to the economy for the world and the U.S. And arguably, it would be good for the Fed to undermine his reelection. And it's like that is like shockingly, you know, over the line. Yeah. And you know, the Fed is studiously nonpartisan. They view themselves as technocrats. And, you know, and they have political independence. And this kind of like acts to undermine, you know, I've been getting emails all day from people saying, "Okay, this proves that they were part of the Obama administration, you know, which is not true. But, uh, you know, this does not help them at all. And the Fed responded by saying, essentially, we don't agree with Dudley at all. Right. But he jumped big time into the political pool. I mean, Peter Coy, why would Mr. Dudley, very smart man, and he knows his words are going to be parsed very carefully. Why would he do something like this? 
I don't know. I went back and looked at his recent columns for Bloomberg Opinion, and they were much more centrist. I, I mean, maybe we should just take just a minute to give his three rationales, you know, let him say it in his own words. The first rationale was that, again, possibly by not lowering interest rates, it would discourage Trump from prosecuting his trade war because the consequences of the trade war become more apparent more quickly. Uh, second, it would, he says it would reassert the Fed's independence by distancing it from the administration's policies. And his third argument was that it would, quote, conserve much-needed ammunition, allowing the Fed to avoid further interest rate cuts at a time when rates are already very low by historical standards. So that's his, the three points that he made. You can buy them or not, but right. it's, that's the argument. And why he would do it? I don't know, because it does seem as though, as Steve just said, it uh, kind of sh- it harms his, the people who still are right. on the Fed by making them making the institution seem political. And so, Steve, as you say, you've been getting a lot of emails. I know you've been talking to people all day about this. What can or should the Fed do going forward? How much of a box does this sort of put them in? This is going to be interesting because Jay Powell is going to be asked about this in congressional testimony. He's going to be asked about this in the press conference. And, you know, he's he's going to have the same thing to say. We're nonpartisan. We're nonpolitical. But this definitely kind of will taint the the feeling around the the Fed. And and the three points that Peter mentioned, those were not the problem. The real problem was the last paragraph where he basically right. says the the reelection of Trump is is a big danger to the economy. And it's like that is not a view that anyone associated with the Fed would associate themselves with. Right. And it was a paragraph I actually read out on air earlier because it really does jump out for all of us. I do wonder too, Steve, because I do feel like and Peter, you've written about this in the magazine, like that we've got a president, and forgive me, this is not being disrespectful, but doesn't totally understand how the global economy works or how markets work. And I do wonder if Bill Dudley, Steve, and just quickly, is maybe trying to help explain what the Fed's supposed to do and you know how it all works. Dudley is a smart guy, and I believe he was well-intentioned, and maybe he was trying to push back against Trump and say, you know, in kind of a Trumpian way, that, you know, Trump has been going after the Fed and and saying, you know, the Fed can respond to that if they wanted right. to. So it's, it's kind of a warning shot. Yeah, exactly. And, Peter, just 20 seconds here, because yeah. you, you've written about this, about yeah. President Trump's misunderstanding of kind of how the economy works. Yeah, uh, but, but I think that's a great point Steve makes, kind of a warning shot. Not saying it's a good idea, but that could be the motivation behind it. All right, we're going to leave it there. Peter Coy, always great to see you. Economics editor for Business Week. Some great stuff in this week's issue. And Steve Matthews, economics reporter, joining us from our Atlanta bureau. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week right here on Bloomberg Radio. That's exactly it. Exactly. Like us. Like (laughs) us this week. Back together. All right. So back together, potentially Philip Morris and Altrian. All stock deal on the horizon, potentially. Craig Giamona, our consumer reporter. We talked to him mostly about weed these days, but he's on the uh, tobacco beat today. Uh, So what's going on, CG? Well, there is a weed angle here. Um, Of course. And, you know, obviously these companies split off in 2008, now more than a decade later. 
There was some speculation yesterday. There was a strange situation where Altria was Altria was up, Philip Morris was down, and then here we go today. Both companies acknowledging that they're in talks on what would be a blockbuster merger. You know, the largest deal since Time Warner's bid for AT&T in 2016. One of the largest deals ever, just based on Altria's market cap. You know, which closed last week around 87 billion. And, you know, the world basically has just changed a lot since 2008. You know, 2008, really, the U.S. operations of Philip Morris were sort of seen as something that was weighing down the company because there was all these lawsuits and investigations and investors were saying, get rid of the U.S. That became Altria smoking his way down in the U.S. Meanwhile, Altria has gone out, invested in Juul. They've invested in Kronos, the Canadian cannabis company. They spent $15 basically investing in vaping and marijuana and now all of a sudden looking a little bit more attractive to their old friend, Philip Morris. I find it fascinating. Does it so does it strategically make sense for these two to combine or is it about I do also wonder are we kind of somewhere at a market top and so people are trying to figure out maybe how to produce some extra revenues, cut some costs. I don't know. There's been a little bit of mixed response I'd say from the analysts, you know, some people saying, "Look, there there's some ways where this does make sense. One big one is Icos. So Philip Morris has spent billions over the recent years betting on Icos which is what they call heat not burn technology. You basically take this special cigarette, put it into a device, and it's similar to vaping. It heats it up, but it doesn't burn it, so it's healthier. It's done pretty well in Japan, South Korea, Italy. It only recently got approved for sale in the U.S. That's their big bet, Philip Morris. But Altria has the rights to market it in the U.S. So that means they have to share the profits. So this deal would take that away. Now Icos is ready to go in the U.S. If they think it's going to be a big hit, they get back together. You know, and, and that's the slam dunk. But there are a lot of questions. You know, smoking continues to decline. And well, that's what I wanted to ask you because I wonder how quickly do we start to say we're already seeing pushback against Juul, right? right. And concerns about health hazards uh, and charges or allegations and concerns about that. And I do wonder how quickly do does ICOS, does somebody say, wait a minute, it's still smoking? Yeah, that's right. I, you know, I asked that question to Ken Shea, Bloomberg intelligence analyst, and he basically said, that's right. There's a lot of bad headlines right now. Vaping is under scrutiny. There's this idea that it's healthy. There's a lot of sort of questions about that. But that all are probably playing the long game when it yeah. comes to vaping. That ultimately, 10 years from now, we're going to crack down on 16-year-olds vaping, but that regulators are going to say, look, for the pack-a-day smoker, this is better for you. And that, so the long game here is to bet on vaping as a tobacco alternative. And you have 10 years of revenue to play with. That's right. Potentially. We're living in a world where antitrust and regulatory approval certainly is never a slam dunk. What are the chances that this could run into some obstacles there? Feels a little bit to me like Whole Foods, Amazon, where people mm. said, oh, my God, you know, Amazon's going to own Whole Foods. They own everything. At the time, Whole Foods was like 2% of the grocery yeah. market. So Icos and Juul, similar. They're in the same ballpark. But for the regulators, you know, are those different products? It's probably considered different. I mean, the, most of the reaction I've seen is that the regulatory risk here is minimal. But again, that, that's a big wild card. Yeah, is there absolutely. somebody else who would come in for Altria? That's hard to say. I mean, they're right now by far the biggest. You know, British American has their recently did a deal. Um, so that's hard to say because these guys are the two biggest. They would get even bigger, really squash the rest of the competition. So it would really be a sort of a dominating cigarettes play as much as cigarettes. Cigarettes are dying, especially in the U.S., but the, the global rate has you know kind of held steady. It's only yeah. ticking down a little bit. There's still people that smoke out there. All right, only a minute left, but we have to ask you about this other <laughs> story, our favorite which story I think day. is our favorite story of the <laughs> yes. day. Uh, beer pong, sustainability, how do those fit together? 
Pretty interesting. You know, Ball Corporation has been around for a long time. A couple years ago, they basically went all in on aluminum cans, got out of the plastic business. They've really benefited. Craft beer comes in cans now, and cans are really having a moment because of the concerns about plastic pollution. Dasani and Aquafina, made by Coke and Pepsi, are experimenting with cans. So Ball is leaning into the concerns about pollution and coming up with an aluminum solo cup for sustainable beer pong, basically. So there you, go. you go to get a beer at Giant Stadium, you go to get a beer at the Ohio State game, you might be getting that beer in an aluminum cup, which aluminum is much easier to recycle than plastic. Right. And is it better? Like, will it hold as you like pop the ball? You know, I saw <laughs> that they're, the they're basically about the same weight. You could probably still crush one with your hand. They say it keeps the beer colder. They, you know, that's obviously no, an added. For ball pong, though, what's I, I, better? I, it seems like beer, it's the beer, same. It's called beer pong. It's called beer pong. pong. Yeah. They're, they're saying no difference. Yeah. I mean, I have beer a couple. Pong. I have a couple right. on my desk. Watch. Um, they're saying no difference as far as the performance for beer pong. But yeah. that basically consumers are going to be willing to pay a that's little what bit. I was trying to get to. Yeah, okay. same, it should be the same for beer pong. Okay. Don't worry. All right. Well, we're going to test it out on air. Fraternities around the country are like right, exactly. Like whew. But you know, I'm sure they're coming up with. Whole new game. Yeah, we'll test it in the studio. Anthony won't mind at all Uh, if we play beer pong in the studio. (laughs) All right, Greg Giamona, always good to catch up with you. You do have a fascinating beat, to say the least. Uh, Working on both a potential acquisition merger, merger acquisition in the tobacco space, as well as the future of beer pong. All right, so in the last segment, we talked a little bit about some mega, mega, mega deal making uh, out in the tobacco business. But let's go a little bit into more of the real world, candidly. Yes, uh, I agree. Where deals uh, are more often getting done, the middle market, as it were. Karen Davies is back with us. She is Senior VP and Managing Director of Private Equity out at Huntington National Bank, based in Cleveland, back here with us in New York City. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. I love you're so comfortable that you came in. We were like, all right, who's going to bring in the guests? You're like, I got it. I'll bring myself in. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's great to have you. So what's the mood out there among the uh, among the dealmakers? Well, I guess if you put your blinders on and, and, and stop watching the inverted yield curve and right. um, all of the talk of the day on, on trade and tariffs, um, I would just tell you that the backlog in the M&A market is still very robust. Hmm. You know, the first half of the year was very strong. Not as strong, a little bit more tepid than 2019, but June-July deal announcements were very strong in terms of of M&A activity. And as you know, when, when M&A deals come uh, to the market, it still takes them a good 60 to 90 days to close. So in terms of the reacting to yesterday's news or the news before, you still have a very active set of transactions going on and, and having access to capital and credit. Karen, how much of this is um, you've got a lot of money sloshing around that's got to ultimately be put to work because investors pay people to put these these uh, this money to work versus... Um, these deals make sense to do, and it's a sign of a strong economy yeah. and a strong business environment. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. When you go out, um, so from, from Huntington um, perspective, we spend a lot of time out in the middle market with our private equity firms. We're located in the middle market, so we're talking to executives and CFOs all the time. And, you know, it, when you speak to them one-off and you turn off the TV and you turn off yeah. the radio, what you're hearing is earnings are still growing, maybe not at the clip of the first quarter, 
things are going well. Hardest thing I have is finding uh, workforce, right? People. Unemployment is so low. I mean, it's hard to expand when you can't get access to people. Inventory levels have sort of steadied off, and um, the companies are doing well. So uh, they are looking to the M&A market to to potentially transition wealth, right? Maybe they're a first-gen, second-gen, privately-owned business. I know some deals go sponsor to sponsor or sponsor to strategic, but the middle market where we sit that we see is privately owned. Mm -hmm. This is an opportunity to transfer wealth while multiple are at an all-time high. some kind of liquidity event. Right. And, and you've got, what, a million, 1.5 trillion of dry powder now. Yeah. It keeps raising every quarter in, in, in private equity, and they've got to deploy it somewhere. So I think there's still plenty of good assets there for picking up. And so when you look across the potential kind of universe of, of acquisitions, are there sectors where you feel like the prices are are right, you know, sort of not too high, which seems to be the biggest uh, sort of hindrance uh, at this point? What are what are people where are people willing to do deals sector wise? So in the in the large sector space, which we've seen is obviously we've seen a lot of um, uh, in the publics, the pharma deals yep. getting done, the the fintech payment processing deals mm-hmm. getting done, electronic tech like the Raytheons. But when you kind of come – and those are being done in you know 10 to 12 times multiple range. When you come down mid-market, it's more like nine times range. And it's still pretty focused on um, some healthcare, IT, SaaS-based businesses, and then just some niche manufacturing and consumer right. goods. Bidding up for – oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Jason. Bidding up for assets? Like are we seeing you oh, know, competing yeah. bids? Ah. Oh, for sure. I mean it, it's just been um, – the auctions have been very wide, bringing you know, multiple people with a private equity f- firms to the table, three or four bidders at the very end. Yeah. And you know, sometimes uh, folks coming in, taking the deal right off the table, a strategic might strike in and take the deal off the table, pay all cash, and call it a day. I mean speaking of blinders, it's very easy for us to you know, walk up and down – Park Avenue. We've got bulge bracket private equity firms sort of literally lining uh, lining the street, you know, billions of dollars in assets, tens, hundreds of billion dollars in assets under management. And yet there, I think, I just heard this number recently, 8,000 private equity firms out there, give or take. It, yes. Um, you're seeing a lot of them that, you know, maybe have a couple hundred million dollars, a couple billion dollars maybe uh, on the high end. How is their behavior different they sort of take us inside their playbook a little bit so compared to the the, the mega yeah. big funds so they're they're definitely focused on on the middle market they're really looking for assets that have a really strong management team to back they'd like to have them roll over equity they'd like to have them stick around they're looking for solid cash flow businesses high free cash flow businesses right now maybe backing away from he- some heavy cyclicals or heavy capex users so solid platform solid free cash flow solid management team something a bit unique they're going to back them and they're coming down market in terms of the lower middle market and doing the buy and build strategy ah like a bi- sort of a platform a platform type, yeah. yeah interesting a platform how strategy. quickly are they looking to turn it around in terms of sell it uh, off, sell it off. Yeah. well, pretty quickly. So, I mean, usually it, it, we see the average hold at about three years. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it, Which is pretty consistent? Pretty consistent. Or is it shorter than we've seen in the past? No, I think it's pretty consistent. Okay. And I think, um, you know, sometimes there's the unicorn, right, where it, right. Just, it just blows up and it's way better than they thought it was going to be and, the, and they can't, you know, help but sell it because the, the offer is too good to be true. Right. I mean, the other thing we always like to ask people who don't have to either endure or enjoy, depending on your perspective, the, 
the wonders of New York City and sort of the coast every day. Um, I mean, what's the, the general economic mood in, in Cleveland? You have a diverse economy, um, decent baseball team. Uh, like, what, what are people sort of rallying around economically, or how worried are they? Well, so in Cleveland and in the rest of our footprint in the middle market, you know, the, the bigger cities is Chicago, Detroit, you know, um, Indiana, and, and Pittsburgh. Um, the mood is still expansionary. Interesting. The mood is still expansionary. I think you've seen a little bit of data that I think it was manufacturing orders were down a bit for the first time in mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. was like 15 quarters. Or I might have that off by a quarter or two, but it was a sort of a first time down, if you will. Um, I think when we're out talking to the companies in the middle market, though, it, they still feel you know GDP is positive. They still feel you know unemployment is is low. Consumer confidence, consumer spend. People are still spending money, and uh, they're not in sort of cost-cutting mode yet. Interesting. So when it comes to things like the U.S.-China trade, which we, of course, (laughs) spend understandably so because it does impact the financial market, spend so much time on, these folks, what, are they mostly dealing with domestic sales so they don't get so concerned? So there's there's definitely some um, of our relationships and private equity-owned businesses in the middle market that are reliant on China. And I think that, you know, this started – probably eight months ago, nine months ago, where they were looking to alternate supply sources, trying to diversify, trying to get ahead of it. Um, most of our clients are telling us that they are able at this time to pass on those price increases to their customers. Right. Um, but again, I'm talking here more domestically. We certainly have companies who have business uh, manufacturing plants in China, mm. that's very concerning. And so I think you might mm. see PE back away from a little bit of that type of investment. Interesting. It's going to be an uh, interesting few months for sure in the deal-making world. Karen Davies, keeping us honest. Thank you so much. Senior Vice President, Managing Director of Private Equity out at Huntington National Bank, based in Cleveland, here with us in New York City today. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, I think if we had to sort of signal this segment, we would just say, baller alert. Well, yeah, or as Charlie Pellet said, if I was throwing a wedding, these are the people I want at my wedding. Yeah, who's going to give the toast? Well, we don't know, but we're going to turn it over to the man himself, Barry Ritholtz, Bloomberg Opinion columnist and host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. I listen to it every weekend. Joel Weber is also here, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. It was his idea to put this all together. All right. I love it. Why did you want to do this? Well, I know that I knew that Barry goes to the Maine woods every summer. He's written about it before. And this, uh, there's this little term for this thing that goes down there. Uh, it's kind of known as the shadow fed. And I was like, of all the moments in time that I want to know what the shadow <laughs> fed is talking about <laughs> right it. now. And uh, it was the week before the Jackson Hole thing. So when Barry was going up there, we, I just said, how about you go uh, write a little letter from Maine for us? And that's what he did. So, uh, And I, I usually take notes, and I usually come back and have a few words to share. But this was the first time I, I had a dual mandate. My dual mandate <laughs> was to discuss both the shadow fed that takes place in Maine and put that into context of, the real Fed, the big meeting in Jackson Hole, um, and there were a lot of parallels between the speeches by Jerome Powell in Wyoming and what I heard from various former Fed officials and other people who either currently or previously worked for the Fed. So, so yeah, lay, lay some groundwork here, though, because, like, what is this main thing? Camp so, Kotak. The Camp, main event. Right. It, yeah. it, it's been called Camp Kotak. It, it, it's about 20-something years old. It really began to ramp up 
after September 11th and sort of a fit of life is short, let's get out of the office. Uh, and what started, a, a number of people uh, were at a National Association of Business Economics, uh, Economics Conference at uh, the hotel attached to the South Tower at, at Two World Trade. Everybody survived uh, who were at that conference, but it was, hey, let's do this. And so it's about 50 people. Uh, we, we calculated back of the envelope, not counting government officials or central banks, uh, it it's about two trillion dollars worth of assets That's a lot of in money. the room. Wow. Yeah, that a trillion here, a trillion there. Done by David Kotak, who's been right. the best from Cumberland. Right, David Kotak is the chairman and co-founder of um, Cumberland Advisors, which themselves run about ten billion dollars in fixed income. Um, uh, another back of the envelope ballpark calculation, and he's beloved by everybody in the industry. Yeah. And he gathers these people together. And it's a really broad, unusual, diverse group. And so there's a lot of debate and discussion. It, it's passionate, but it's also very good-natured and really very high level. Like this is not the sort of thing where you just show up and wing it. People ask you questions, and if you don't have good answers, you really look a fool. And you might not get invited back. That's, that's right. That's the other thing is you never want to be the person right. – I, I – Said in, in the Where's Business Week piece, right? <laughs> I, I, I said in the Business in. Week piece, my <laughs> slot opened up because a Chicago currency trader uh, decided to stand up in a canoe in the middle of the lake and basically flipped everybody out into the lake who was in his canoe. And that is cause for not getting Although you, back. It, it sounded like your attendance was a little bit uh, a little shaky. In, shaky because you almost burned a cabin down. So if you, ever had, if you ever had a apartment in New York City, you know the radiator is essentially there so you don't have to wash towels. At least <laughs> when you're a bachelor, that's what you do. You throw the towel on the radiator. It, it cooks it and you have a warm, dry towel the next morning. Well, I did that uh, under the assumption that these towels were actually made of some organic fiber. And I, I <laughs> went to breakfast. Back then, only the dining hall had Wi-Fi, so if you, uh, I'm up early. Uh, apparently, this towel smoldered. It filled the cabin with, yeah. with dark smoke. And, and that night, I was uh, prosecuted by Josh Rosner, who accused me of uh, recklessness and negligence. And my defense was, this wasn't. Reckless? Uh, you think I was doing this by accident? This was <laughs> on purpose. Plan. You and your roommate snore so much. I yeah. was just trying, was trying to get, to get you nice. out of here. Yeah. I figured I'd just, just smoke the, you out. Just blame the shadow right. fed. That's exactly right. Okay, so, so, so back to the shadow fed. I want to know what they had to say about the predicament that the fed sort of finds itself in now under Trump's ire, which is – you know, I think one of the defining uh, stories of the past year. So really fascinating. I, and, and when I got home, I researched everything that people told me, and it all turned out to be true. So the history of presidents, uh, I don't even want to say lobbying, pressuring, uh, twisting the arms of, literally throwing them up against the wall and saying cut rates, goes back a long time. It goes back to, you know, 50, 60 years, and there were examples – of of LBJ and and um, Ronald Reagan and this has happened consistently now, through time. Yeah. However, it was always behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. It was always very quietly handled. It was more or less effective. You know, when LBJ throws um, Bill Martin against the wall and says, "I got boys dying in v Vietnam," and Bill Martin doesn't care, kind of gets his attention. 
Uh, now the difference is this is all taking place yeah. in public in front of 60 million Twitter followers. And it's very, very aggressive and very different. Well, it's a great story. We'll put it out for everybody to read and check it out. And I've got to say, I love an event where everybody who attends it has to bring a case of wine. And I think, Jason, that's the rule we should do that yeah. anybody who comes to visit us. We should. Barry Ritholtz, thank you so much. Of course, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Check out host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Jill Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week magazine. And this is Bloomberg Radio. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Eric Clark back with us, portfolio manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. He joins us on the phone from the city by the bay, San Francisco. Eric, great to have you back with us. Yeah, thank you. Happy almost Labor Day. Yes, exactly. Uh, not coming fast enough, it feels like, for the markets, at least a little bit of a respite maybe from the volatility. What do you make of the market right now? How would you describe it in a, in a word or phrase? Well, I, I think we talked about it last time, spasmic volatility. I think we should just probably can just just accept that that's here to stay for a little while. And so what do you do with that? You know, like what as you talk to clients, as you think about the, the names you look most closely at, the sectors, where is a good place to go amid uh, all the spasms? You know, I, I think that it forces you to be a little bit more active. And I'm OK with that. I used to trade for a living. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of uh, I enjoy that part of the volatility. You know, volatility is the friend of the long term investor, they say. So. Um, taking advantage of some panic that seems to be disconnected with fundamentals usually is a good idea, you know, and, and we're getting a lot of those potential, you know, 85% of the volume on the, tr- the exchanges these days comes from algorithms, and those right. guys are, you know, they're, they're, they don't act with, with logic or reason. They tend to just act on news or short-term momentum signals. So sometimes you get an opportunity to take advantage of some of that spasmic activity by adding to some names, particularly, you know, we're focused on the consumer around the world, and the consumer is actually pretty good. Um, we're in a manufacturing slowdown, but the consumer data here and in many other places is still pretty positive. So, uh, you know, that's that's where our focus is and, and will always be. All right. So that leads you to when there's a bit of a downturn in the equity markets. What kind of names have you been buying into? Um, well, we still love the same trends. You know, we still love the athleisure. We added to Alibaba. You know, Asia, the Asian consumer that uses its mobile phone to spend, that is going to continue to be a very big, long-term, important theme. And, and when we get those, those spasms, we love Alibaba, and we love some of the, you know, the focus has been U.S. brands serving U.S. consumers that don't have much China exposure, and then Chinese brands serving Asia and China, like an Alibaba or Tencent, and then maybe non-U.S. brands. I've been focusing more on the non-U.S. brands that might actually benefit from the anti-American brand the sentiment in China. So that's a, you know, Lululemon still comes to mind doing well. Nike, Estee Lauder had a great quarter uh, here a couple of weeks ago. So the vanity trade is still on. 
Um, so there's there's and, and U.S. restaurants we, we've been focused. You know, Shake Shack has been a monster. Still, it's expensive, but it's they're they're still growing really well and resonating all over the world. And Chipotle is has come back with uh, with some strength as well as Starbucks. So there's there's a lot of strength in the consumer. We're just staying away but, from some of the manufacturing stuff. So let me just ask you, Shake Shack, you're talking a forward-looking P.E. of 153. You're, Super expensive. Yeah, but you're willing to commit money to that with the with that kind of valuation? And even Estee Lauder, you're looking at a forward-looking P.E. of almost 34. That seems a little pricey. Are you buying kind of at the top here, potentially? Well, we, we've actually trimmed Shake Shack because it was a big position. So so I agree with you. That, that you know... We, so you've not been buying into it. You've been hundred. Okay, so you've not. Yeah, we've been trimming. Sorry, we've been trimming Shake Shack. Uh, Estee Lauder is just kind of a stable, predictable grower. So people are willing to pay more for predictability. And and the vanity, you know, companies. L'Oreal is getting uh, is is really on my radar screen. Ulta Salon as well. They're expensive, but you know they're pretty stable as well. So uh, and and then I love the video gaming stuff. Yeah. And, yeah, sale. talk to me about the video games because at least when we were coming on the air, Activision, I believe, was your best performer uh, in the S and P today. It's number two now. It's up about four and a half percent. But you know, we look at EA a lot. Obviously, Nintendo uh, is a name. How do you discern winners and losers here? Well, it's you know, it, it's tough because gamers are very fickle, and we're going through this transition. Uh, in gaming from the console to the to the online and then to the esports so you know we've actually been focused more you know the biggest opportunity for gamers is the US it's actually Asia again right. there's 4 billion people over there and so there's there's a lot of people that that are focused a lot more than the US consumer on gaming so Nintendo has been resonating really well with uh with their console and obviously Tencent's the largest gaming company and then Sony has some good gaming as well. So Activision has been a dreadful performer. It's just gotten a little bit of a lift. And EA, to me, if we were going to add a new gamer in the U.S., EA probably looks the most uh, appropriate given its you know uh, profitability and the Madden sports and, and the things that are resonating. But it, it tended, it's tended to be Asia for now. It's been an interesting year, I think, for anybody to be an active fund manager. What do you make of what you're seeing in terms of your performance? I think the fund is up about 15% so far uh, this year. Um, give me an idea of the things that you've been happy about, things that you would have done differently. Well, I think the biggest thing is that we held – a little too much cash in January and part of February. I mean, we, we would we would be having. I mean, listen, fifteen percent as we at the end of August is still a pretty good return, but it would be in the in the in the mid twenties if we didn't hold so much cash. But that cash decision helped us dramatically in Q4 protect people's capital. So you know, you you can't get them the top and the bottom right. So I think the biggest thing for us is you know just managing the risk that we have because it's this isn't just a full throttle equity strategy this is also managing people's risk and downside returns and and sometimes you 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 it pays you to be a little more cautious and give people a better ride and you know the downside to that is sometimes the market rips right back in your face and you're holding cash for a little too long but that's okay it all works its way out and since we've been fully invested we're we're uh, we're cap- kind of closing that delta between the S&P I think it's a little less than 200 basis points at this point yeah the so S&P I, is up about 14 and a half percent this year yeah all right yeah, so we're Eric close after the big cash yeah Biggest single worry as we head into the post-Labor Day uh, segment of the year? The stubbornness around the trade discussions. I just don't think China wants to deal 
with with the way that we're trying to deal with them. And so if that happens, that's going to create more uncertainty, which creates people to freeze from spending and corporations to spend, which means that earnings are too high, which means that stocks probably need to go lower. So I, I think the White House is trying to understand that, and hopefully they will. And, and obviously the Fed's always a wild card because you know, now you have the Fed and Trump kind of duking it out in the sandbox. So that's the biggest worry for me right now. All right, we're going to leave it there. Eric Clark, Portfolio Manager, Rational Dynamic Brands Fund. He joined us on the phone from San Francisco. A lot of good names there. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that I certainly take away from that, the consumer, man. Like, you can look across the trade war. You can do whatever you want. Like, the consumer is still buying, especially you think about those athleisure names, yep. video games. And it's the global consumer as well, not just uh, here at home. Right. People are out there still spending. People are at restaurants. People are out there doing things. So uh, that is certainly an important indicator when it comes to the U.S. economy. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.